Pastor Nick was saying, we are coming to questions eight and nine in the catechism. And for those of you who have not read the catechism or come to these questions before, I figured it would be best to keep them together because really they are, they're both dealing with the doctrine of the Trinity. You'll see that, I think. What we are thinking about tonight, and last week we started it with our question, what is God? Hopefully you remember that. What we're really starting to think about in the catechism now is what we would call theology proper or the doctrine of God. And the catechism began explaining and defending a doctrine of Scripture first. That was questions one through six. And then at question seven, its emphasis, its emphasis turned to the doctrine of God. And so there are a few things that we need to realize right away concerning this category tonight. And maybe we could say it like this, just kind of to begin, that we are in deep waters when we are thinking about the doctrine of God. The, the topic of theology proper isn't the sort of thing that you could just cover in two Sunday evening services. Uh, you would have a, a whole semester class at a seminary, perhaps, and, and still only really be scratching the surface about these types of things that um, the theology proper and the doctrine of God is getting at. You wouldn't be able to plumb every detail in all of its majesty and its glory, even, again, if you had a whole semester, even two semesters. And by the way, there is a there is a danger in studying the Trinity as and then end up looking at it as some sort of dry, abstract reality and some abstract revelation of God. And that's really to, to miss the point about it. When we are thinking about the triune God, when we are thinking about the doctrine of the Trinity, what we are, are really thinking about is adoration, is how we adore our God, who this God is, that we might worship and love him and give him the praise that he deserves. So as... As, as Ross was pointing out last week, there is an unfathomableness of God, and that really should be to us awe-inspiring, and it compels us to worship him. And so, you know, the honest reality is that we're going to have an eternity to think about and to learn about how amazing Yahweh is. And even then, with an eternity before us and continuing to learn about this great and mighty God, we won't be able to know all that there is to know because God in all of his attributes is eternal. He is he is infinite. So our study of the character and the nature of God, in doing so, our goal isn't to comprehend God. That's not the goal. Our goal tonight is to not is not to comprehend God. It's impossible for us to do that. God is incomprehensible. He is beyond what we can comprehend. God is the creator. We are the creation. We're created beings, in other words, or we're creatures. And so right from the start, we are in a position of humility. We are less and he is greater. He is infinite. We are finite. That is a God-imposed, sovereign, and good limit on us. That's how we understand creation. We start there. We start knowing that we are image bearers of this sovereign God. And because we're image bearers, we know more than other creatures, perhaps even more than the angels, right? First Peter 1.12 talks about the angels desiring to look into these things that was revealed to the apostles. But to truly comprehend God would be more than our minds could handle. God knows himself perfectly, and he's the only one that's even capable of doing that. Uh, the secret things, the hidden things, they belong to the Lord, Deuteronomy 29, 29. So don't make the error. And, and both of these sound kind of spiritual and pietist, 
a pietistic even, but don't make the error that says, well, we can know God totally or that we can't know God at all because he's so great. Those are both extreme views. God is not completely knowable, but he's not unknowable either. He's given to us means by which we may know him. And uh, we talked about that before, the two different books that God has given us, the book of nature and the book of scripture or general revelation and special revelation. And then further, this natural and good limitation is impacted by the fact that we are also fallen in Adam. So not only do we have to contend with a creaturely limitation, the fact that you know we are not on the same level as God, but we also have to deal with the reality that we have a fallen nature in Adam, that sin has impacted our ability to think rightly. Even us as people united to Christ in faith, we still have to contend with that. And so, so when we come to the topic of theology proper, we're limited by time, we're limited by creation, and we're limited by sin. And so what we're trying to do tonight, at any time that we consider theology proper, the doctrine of God, what we're trying to do is apprehend him. Not comprehend, because not to know perfectly. We can't do that. But to apprehend what he has revealed to us. To know the right God in the right way. To, to understand him as he has revealed to us in his holy word. To understand him within the good limits that he has placed upon us. Because really, to go beyond those limits would be to say that we know better than God. But God knows us better. He, he knows what we should know and what we shouldn't. What we can take, what we couldn't. So this is why God has revealed himself to us then with special revelation. And why general revelation isn't enough. We mentioned in previous catechism lessons the difference between general and special revelation, right? General revelation is God's revelation of himself through creation on our conscience, the light of the light of nature in man. This is true for all humanity. And we see in general revelation that God has revealed himself and he exists and that we're under his authority. We could capture that through general revelation. But God has revealed who he is and why he created us through special revelation. So general revelation is insufficient in our humanity to understand and know God, especially towards salvation. That's why we have special revelation. And that's why our focus tonight in understanding the Trinity is through these questions is going to come through special revelation. We can't look into nature and understand Trinity. We won't be able to do that. It is through God revealing these things to us through his word that we see and understand this doctrine of the Trinity. So that's the focus of our study tonight. So we also need to understand that this is an important topic. This is a very important topic. Nearly all heresy, perhaps all of it even, is related to misunderstanding the doctrine of God at some level. Uh, to misunderstanding the Trinity and even the hypostatic union, which I guess technically you would say that's Christology or Christology, but that's a subset of the doctrine of God because Jesus is God, of course. And listen, if you want to rightly understand the acts of God, then you need to rightly know the person of God. So again, we're not going to be able to cover everything in this topic tonight. We didn't cover everything we could have last week with what God is, but we're hoping to lay some agreeable groundwork with the catechism tonight, and specifically tonight about the Trinity. So there are a few introductory matters to consider uh, here, a few things to look at before we dive into the catechism questions themselves. First, we want to, again, just remember that our study and our focus on these questions is knowing these truths through special revelation. But the challenge that we come to as we start to think about the Trinity today is is realizing that it is very often the, the case, it is very common the case 
for discussions of the Trinity to not be focused on Scripture, actually. I mean, how many times have you in in, in the past and in, in other churches or small group settings or whatever it is, watching a, something on TV, have you heard of an, an analogy of the Trinity that we used to help you try to understand? So, like, for example, some that I'm familiar with, where, like, uh, people will try to teach the Trinity through the example of an egg. And so they say, oh, well, here's an egg, and an egg has a shell, it has a yolk, and it has the, you know, the white part, and it's all one egg, all these different parts in this one egg. Or then some people will like to talk about the Trinity as, you know, as this different states of water. So you say water can exist like in a, in a gas form, in a solid, and it's ice at that point, and then also in a liquid. Uh, it's in water as you normally understand it. So H2O, some people will think is, it a, is a good example of, or a helpful example of thinking of the Trinity. I've heard people talk about a shamrock, the three-leaf clover, the the three leaves on the one, uh, I guess it's technically a weed is what it really is, but um, that's, a, that's a popular one. I've heard some people who speak about man as a tripart being. So some people hold the view that man is made up of three parts, body, soul, and spirit. I'm not convinced that man is a tripart being, by the way. <laughs> I think it's a, you know, bipart being but anyways people look some people who hold to, to the tripart division of man will look at that and say oh it's one man but body soul and spirit so oh one god father son and spirit or sometimes even men will just look at or people will consider a man in general like a man could be a father a husband and a son and he's still all the same guy so you have all these analogies and there's many 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 others even have you all heard those types of analogies before maybe any other ones Maybe not if you've been taught rightly, at least. Um, people are most often well-meaning when they use these analogies. I mean, it's hard to talk about a being like God, of course, one divine essence, three persons. But the challenge with analogies like that is that all of them fall short of the truth concerning who God is. And not only do they fall short, they even become dangerous because they can lead to misunderstanding who God is and they try to explain the creator in light of his creation, which which is that's just start that's just doing it all backwards. We can't explain the creator in light of his creation. It's the other way around. We explain the creation in light of the creator. And so there's all kinds of dangerous pitfalls. I mean, all the different examples, I, they're either modalism or tripartism. They're, they're all bad examples of Trinity. Really, the best thing for us to do when we're thinking about the Trinity is to stick to God's word, to stick to the creedal formula, so a catechism would be would fall under that category as well. These are the efforts that believers, spirit-filled and believers, have put forward to try to keep us within the bounds of orthodoxy. And again, it is hard to talk about the Trinity. We we could just we could say that plainly. It is not easy because God is so great. But nevertheless, there are ways in which we could do it in a helpful way, in a manner that is true to the Word, rather than coming up with these other things that seem helpful kind of but in the end they actually do more damage than not the triune god is not some mental puzzle that we're supposed to try to figure out he's the very source of our life our joy our happiness our righteousness our peace of every blessing in the heavenly places so we look to his word to try to understand the trinity and of course um you know that time limitation that i mentioned earlier we have that tonight so again we're only scratching the surface Let's go ahead and look at these questions, questions eight and nine. So question nine first, if you have your copy of the Baptist Catechism or the outline that I provided for you, 
I like to read the question and then we can together uh, read the answer. Okay, so hopefully you have one of those. So question number eight, are there more gods than one? The answer, there is but one only, the living and true God. So short enough, right? Easy to memorize, I would think. So we begin here actually with this question to think about the Trinity. But obviously the, the triune Godhead is not mentioned in this question. We'll get to that, not specifically at least, not outright at least. What I want to do first though, what I would like for you to see first though, is the offensiveness of this question. This is like the offensiveness of God here that this question captures. You know, I was, I was reading this question over the past week and thinking about it. This question has to be one of the most offensive questions you can answer in the world today. And there are, there are lots today of offensive, you know, things that a Christian might say because of just how wicked, wicked our culture is. But think about it. Most people don't mind if you believe in a God. Most people don't even care if your God is the God of Scripture, as long as they are free to believe and, and say what they want to say about that God themselves, as long as they're able to believe in their gods and, and whatever it is they want to believe in. But these are really fighting words to the world. The, the answer is a universal truth with no exceptions. There is but one only true and living God. So this isn't a, this isn't a, like, um, this is my truth versus your truth type of a matter. That, that's baloney anyways. There's just one truth. And this question is exerting, is exhorting a, a truth that is true for everybody, no matter what they may believe or not. This is the truth and we need to recognize the inherent offensiveness to sinful mankind of even asking this question. The reason there are, quote, other gods is because of the sinfulness and the rebellious hearts of humanity who craft these false gods out of the rejection of the one true God. And so this question needs to be asked. Now, and to be clear, there is but one God, one true and living God, only the true and living God. I won't say too much about it because we've covered this and other Sunday evening services. And also Pastor Nick went to greater detail on this topic in a Sunday morning service through 1 Corinthians. Uh, but there are gods, lowercase g, which are idols, and they're not the they're not living, obviously. And there are gods, lowercase g, which are angels or demons. Again, First Corinthians eight and and First Corinthians ten talk about that. But they're not true God. They're not that is eternal, infinite, and unchanging. Only one God is living and true like that. And so, with this in mind, let's consider the oneness of God. And of course. There are a couple of texts listed on our catechism. So let's start with the first one. So let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 6. You have your Bible. Deuteronomy is the fifth book in the Old Testament in chapter 6. We'll read verses 4 to 9 here. I'm waiting. Chapter 6. i got to get there myself too. So this is, you know, a classic passage of scripture, really. This is where God's people, uh, the nation of Israel, are about to enter into the promised land. And Moses is revealing these words to them. Deuteronomy literally means the second law, the second giving of the law. They're about to enter the land God has promised to give them. So we have this here in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 to 9. It's called the Shema. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So this is a, a truth that is not only to be confessed, all right, but this is a truth that is to be embraced and praised and always is to be put before us, even as we raise our children. Some of you young children here don't have any children, but it's something that you need to be understanding right now even. And hopefully, Lord willing, one day teaching to your children as well, should the Lord bless you with them, that the Lord our God is one. It's pretty clear. It needs to be loved and praised and worshipped. Right, let's go to Isaiah 45. Okay, so still the Old Testament. Isaiah is a prophet, chapter 45. Now, all of Isaiah chapters 40 to 48, actually. They contrast the one true God with idols. So you can read all those chapters if you like. Chapter 40 through 48, you get to see the, the humor of God, actually, in some of these passages, the sarcasm that God has, the way he deals sometimes with these people who worship falsely. And in those chapters, there are many statements of God's supremacy, his total otherness, contra creation, uh, God's oneness. But I think that in these verses, we have one of the clearest expressions that God alone is God and there is no other. So Isaiah 45, verse 5 through 7, reads this. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. You know who doesn't do any of those things? Everybody else. Any angel or demon, none of those. It is God who does it. This is God alone. Oh, was I, I, I don't remember. <laughs> yeah, so that was helpful to memorize. That's good. So again, uh, the Lord alone is God. He's the only living and true God, right? This is the testimony of Scripture, not society, not cultures, not the ideas of men guiding us here in the truth concerning God. It is the Scriptures that tell us what is true, what is true concerning God. You might ask somebody out in the world, well, how do you explain all this evil? And, and they might come back at you with any sort of excuse. Well, that has nothing to do with God. God can't do anything about it. That's not from God. That, that is not true. That's not what God says about himself. God says he's the one who does these things. Let's go over to the next prophet in Scripture, Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 10. This is the other text given with the catechism. Remember, again, too, the specific wording of the eighth answer. There is only but, there is but only the living and true God, right? Well, where do those phrases, living and true God, come from? Well, it's Jeremiah 10.10. 10. Catechism here is just wanting to simply say what the scriptures said. Verse 10 says, But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth quakes, and the nations cannot endure his indignation. So again, we have the Lord here expressed as the living and true God. He is everlasting, right? 
Uh, we've talked about that in previous catechism questions as well. And of course, this reality, this universal truth, which is not dependent upon factors, is also contained in the New Testament as well. We won't look at 1 Corinthians 8 or 10, since we those are fresh in our memories already because of our Sunday morning series. It also would clearly seem to have Isaiah's words in his mind at that point in those those. But let's let's turn to Galatians. Galatians chapter four. You might be familiar with this passage as well because it wasn't too long ago when we were in Galatians on Sunday morning during the, the, the morning service. And then also I think um the adult Sunday school was in Galatians as well recently. Galatians chapter four. This is verse eight. He says four and he's talking to Gentiles here, right? The Apostle Paul is speaking to Gentiles, a largely Gentile church in the region of Galatia, and he, he refers to their former lives of paganism. So verse 8, he says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. And then he, he warns them not to return back to such things. So, so those are just a few examples. I'm sure we could spend a lot more time looking at the oneness of God here from this question, okay? Um, we could talk about the one will of God or what theologians have, care, careful and good theologians have called the inseparable operations of God here even at this juncture. But really to think about the oneness of God in this way means that we also have to understand something of God's self-revelation that is totally different than anything else in creation. And that is the fact that God is a trinity. We affirm that there is one God and that God is also a trinity. This one God, this one living and true God is three persons. He is triune. So we need to understand the one God in light of the central aspect of the Christian faith. Really, it is the central aspect of the Christian faith. So let's look at question number nine. And again, I'll read the question and then you can read the answer together if you're there. It's, again, it's on your it's in your book or it's on your outline. Question says, how many persons are there in the Godhead? Answer, there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one God, the same in essence, equal in power and glory. Thank you. Okay, so let's consider this evening that there are three central truths here expressed in this question. I'll give them quickly up front. First, number one, we see that there are three persons, right? There are three persons in the one God, three persons in the Godhead. By the way, the word Godhead here is careful theology. It's needed because we shouldn't say that there are three persons in God. No, there are three persons who are God. More on that in just a moment. Nor should we say that there are three gods. There is one God. So they are distinct persons who all act together with specific actions made by the person in creation and in redemption, for example. But they are all in perfect harmony and are in, in ways beyond our comprehension, perfectly one God. So three persons in the Godhead. Secondly, they are the same in substance or subsistence and, or essence. Essence is the word that the catechism uses. And then third they are equal in power and glory. They're equal and specific. They're equal in all ways. But the uh, catechism is highlighting power and glory. So let's consider each of those central truths about God, the Trinity, the Trinitarian God, whom we know, whom we worship. And, and first, the three persons. And again, we look at the texts that are mentioned here at the bottom of question nine. You notice there's 1 John 5, 7, and then Matthew 28, 19. Now, 
Unfortunately, if I ask you brothers and sisters to turn to 1 John 5, 7, most of you would not be able to get the point of the proof text because most likely we're using modern translations, the English Standard Version, the NASB as well, perhaps. Um, if Chris Ramos was here tonight, I would ask him what he had in his, what, what 1 John 5, 7 said in his. But you, so if you have one of these newer translations, like I have the ESV, uh, you wouldn't be able to see what the Protestant reformers, these Baptist forefathers of, our, of ours, were thinking of necessarily with this proof text. And there are a number of reasons for that. Um, this gets into the area of what we would call textual criticism. Uh, we recognize that, that God did not lay out for us an absolutely perfect copy of the original manuscripts. We don't have a, a photo, photocopy machine in the ancient world, right? There was no Xerox machine back in the day when First um, John was writing his letter. And so these were hand copied. And then there were differences that we find through these copied manuscripts over the years. And textual criticism is the practice of looking at these different manuscripts, looking at these differences, and then pointing them out and trying to come to a consensus about what is the true word of God. And, and the differences which do exist, by the way, between these different old, very old manuscripts that are just copies of one another, is that where there is a difference, it doesn't actually change any Christian doctrine. Uh, most of them are spelling issues, things like that, but there are more significant ones, such as 1 John 5, 7, but it's a huge, a huge discussion, and we don't we have time to, to get into it tonight, but front and, center, front and center for us, at least tonight, is this verse, uh, 1 John 5, 7b, really, 5, 7b is a controversial verse, most scholars today will say that it wasn't actually in the Holy Scriptures, but it was added later to defend the Trinity. And that's a huge debate. Again, it's maybe one of, those, one of these days we'll have time to, to look into that and to discuss it. But what I want for us to see tonight, brothers and sisters, is, is nevertheless is that God has still providentially preserved his word through history so that we don't need to be concerned that there are these different manuscripts out there that don't agree in every, you know, like letter or phrase but that he has preserved for his, his word for us to know him and understand him. So let me tell you what this verse says from the King James Version. It says, for there are three that bear record in heaven. And actually, so the, if you have the ESV, all it says for verse 7 is, for, for there are three that testify, or there are three that bear witness. But the King James Version says, for there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. So that second half about the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, the Trinity, that's not in our ESV translation. And so even though there are these differences in manuscripts, what we find is that what is summarized in 1 John 5, 7 is also or can also be proved by many other verses as well. So it's not like our belief in the Trinity hangs on 1 John 5, 7, B. And whether or not 1 John 5, 7, B is found in Scripture or not, if that was actually the words that the Apostle John penned, or if that was somebody later on who added that in there to clarify what he meant, and it was not something he should have done. But nevertheless, that truth is contained in Scripture regardless. Uh, clearly, though, the Protestant Reformers believed First John 5, 7 was Scripture, as we see them continuing on and using it in proof texts in our confession and catechism. But regardless of that textual question, what I want us to see is that the Trinity is still found in Scripture. The Trinity is found all throughout Scripture. So let's go to the second text there at the end of our of answer nine, Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. Now here comes the the Great Commission, right? 
Jesus has died on the cross as a substitute procured for sins, and he has triumphantly rose from the, from the dead three days later. But before he ascends to the right hand of his Father in glory, he leaves this great commission to his church. And he says to them in Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And what I, what I want us to recognize here is that when he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, singular, it does not say baptizing them to the, into the names, plural, right? There is a singular name. Baptizing them is the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So you have one name which is then found in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And for me, some years ago, when this is where the light really went off for me, thinking about the Trinity, the revealed name of God is Yahweh, right? Some translations will say Jehovah. But for most people, when they think of Yahweh, it's often the Father that is in their mind. It's the mistake of the cults too, right? There is Jehovah and then there's Jesus, his son. But the reality is, is that Jesus is just as much Yahweh as the Father is Yahweh. The Spirit is Yahweh. There are three persons in the Godhead. One God, Yahweh. Let's go back to Matthew 3. Turn to just a few chapters over, a few pages over. Verse 6 uh, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. Now this is when Jesus begins his public ministry on the earth. When John the baptizer baptizes him. And so we come to see this baptism take place in Matthew 3, 16 and 17. And we read when he is baptized, he comes up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove. Not that... You know, we always see those pictures of the Holy Spirit being displayed as a dove. That's not, I don't think, what he's trying to say here. The, you know, the scriptures aren't telling us to make an image of God, of a dove or anything else like that. He's, he's descending like a dove. He's coming down gently, and he rests upon Jesus. And then the heavens open up, and you hear the voice of the Father saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So here we hear the Father's voice, the Son's baptism, and the Spirit's descent. So we have here in the Godhead, the Son being baptized, the Father speaking from heaven, and the Spirit descending like a dove. So we have three persons then, all here, all in view. Well, let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14. Towards the very end of this epistle, the apostles closing benediction to the Corinthian church. And notice how he expresses it there at the end of this letter. He says this in chapter 13, verse 14. It says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This is his closing benediction. It is Trinitarian. He speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father in fellowship of the Holy Spirit. So there are three persons we see revealed in Scripture who are God. And secondly, we see that they are the same in essence or substance or being. Is another way of saying that. You hear theologians use all three of those kind of words, actually. Substance, essence, being, to talk about God. 
That is, the three persons are the same in substance, which actually just simply means then they are all God. They are, these three persons are one God. Now we can turn to the very first chapter of Scripture to see this actually. Genesis chapter 1. So Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. This is where God is speaking things into existence. And in this verse, he creates mankind. And there he says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, so pay close attention to the plurals. God said, Let us. He says, Our image. Our likeness. God reveals himself in plural in creation. Now, I know it's the word Elohim. Here and many uh, today will look at the, the us here as not referring to the Godhead, as not referring to the one true God in his plurality. But what they'll see then is this something, uh, some other sort of grouping. They'll say something like, this is referring to his majesty. He's oneself in, in the plural form of his majesty because his majesty is so great. Or they'll say that this is referring to what people call the heavenly hosts. Those are the kinds of things that they'll bring out. Yes, Adam. Isn't it also referring to that way when he, uh, at the Tower of Babel, he, he, let us separate? Yeah, he does. Yeah. So, but I think, though, if, if we read Scripture rightly and understand one of the main principles of hermeneutics, uh, Pastor Nick was talking about this this morning even, we interpret Scripture by Scripture. So then, that's the case. We're not looking to outside sources to tell us what the, the us and the hour is here. We're looking to the word. And the us then, as we have later revelation confirming, is a reference to God as three persons. So I do think that while we can't simply quote this verse and say this proves the Trinity, I think that we can say in the very first chapter of Scripture there is a reference to our, our, the Godhead in three persons, this great mystery. And this is strengthened by the Apostle John's opening in his gospel account. Let's go to John chapter 1. Because remember, when the New Testament authors, they're not just writing from a blank slate. They are writing with the Old Testament revelation in their minds and in their hearts. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John opens up his gospel almost like a parallel to that of the Genesis creation account. So these are very well-known verses where John essentially depends upon a Christocentric uh, reading of Genesis 1 here as the gospel opens. So John 1 verses 1 and 2, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And if you know how Genesis 1 opens up, right? In the beginning. So he's, he's wanting to call us back to that. But look what he says. Here the Word is both distinct from God, right? The Word was with God, and yet... The Word is God. The Word was God. So we have this Word who, of course, is revealed through the Gospel of John as Jesus Christ, as we get to in verse 14, and he is with God. Distinction is made, and he is God. So that's why I think you know, the, the heavenly host argument, okay, it's interesting, but Scripture interprets Scripture. We look at John. John's wanting us to think back at to Genesis 1, and he says Jesus is there. So... He, Jesus, is of the same subsistence. He's of the same essence, the same being. He is God. And we can also see this in another way. 
The Father is referred to as God in the New Testament. The Son is referred to as God in the New Testament. And the Holy Spirit is referred to as God in the New Testament. So let's briefly understand this then. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 to 21. He says here in verse 18, beginning there, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So here... Here in Ephesians, I thought that was my, I thought that was me again. I thought that was here. I was like, man, that's it. Um, so, I know. So here you have God referred to as God the Father, right? Or the Father is God. But then we could also look for an example in Romans chapter 9. We'll flip back to Romans chapter 9. And we'll look at the opening of this, cha of this um, chapter. The Apostle Paul speaking to the church in Rome. And he says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed and forever. Amen. So you have Christ, then, who is referred to as the eternally blessed God. So the Son is called God in the New Testament. Then let's also go to Acts chapter 5. So go left. One more book. This is another well-known story. The, the New Covenant has been ratified in Christ's blood. And God is bringing about through uh, the a special gifting of the Holy Spirit in this time period, much blessing to start the church off. God is in control. He is building his church here in this highly uh, hostile um, environment. And so he says in Acts 5, 1 through 4, our people, what's happening here, people are selling their property and they're bringing it and donating to the church. And then Ananias and Sapphira do that as well. And they want to bring their proceeds before the church, but they want to do it just simply to really to look good. And so one through four says this. says, But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived in this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. So the Holy Spirit then is called God, right? Because it was, they said they lied to the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 4, well, you lied to God. So the Holy Spirit is not merely an influence. He's not just some force an impersonal force. The Holy Spirit is a person, and we need to keep that truth in mind. The Holy Spirit is of the same substance, the same essence as God the Father and God the Son. These three persons are one God. 
So we've seen so far that there are three persons according to this question, and the scripture affirms that they are the same in substance or essence. That which makes the Father God is the same for the Son and the Spirit. There's a lot more that we can say here. I mean, there's topics like the eternal generation of the Son. There's an old but showing up as new heresy that really is a couple years ago. The discussion has died down some now, but this claim that the Son is eternally submitted to the Father. And I've, so I've listed some books on the outline that I gave that I, I gave to you or made available for you of some good books that if you wanted to look more into the topic of theology proper and the Trinity and the doctrines concerning them, you could look at these books and they would be a good starting place for you on that. But we need to move on. Finally, the Catechism instructs us that they are equal. They're equal in power and equal in glory, which makes sense, right? I mean, if they are all of the same substance or same subsistence, they should all be equal since they're all made of the same being. So this is really the result of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit being one God, the same in essence, same in being. There is, there, there is no hierarchy in God. God the Father is not more God than God the Son. God the Father, God the Son, they're not more God than God the Holy Spirit. Each person is fully God, equal in power and glory. So they're equal. They are equal, and that means that we can't divide God up into three. And there's mystery here, and we can't fully grasp it. I mean, it is even it is even just hard to talk about the Trinity. You could accidentally slip into a heretical comment not even needing to. But this is God's self-revelation of who he is. That there is one true and living God, and this one true and living God is eternally, or exists eternally and equally as three persons, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So I like how James White, uh, Pastor James White, considers these truths. If you haven't read his book, I encourage you to consider it. It's in the, the, the recommendation list. I'm speaking of The Forgotten Trinity by James White. But Pastor White discusses the Trinity in this book in a very readable way, uh, teaching us to be on guard against the cults and then also simply the sloppy language that is common in Protestant circles concerning the doctrine of the Trinity. So it's, a, it's, a very, it's a warm, a helpful devotional, really, uh, on the topic of who our Trinitarian God is, looking at it through Scripture. It's a very helpful book. And one of the things he does very early on in the early chapters is he shows us how important these truths are to the understanding of God's revelation of himself in Scripture. So there's a diagram on your note sheet on your um, notes from his book. I, I put the classical diagram of the Trinity on there as well just to have it because I feel like if you're going to talk about the Trinity, you almost have to have that, almost, especially if you're uh, having like a PowerPoint or, or a note sheet or something like that, an outline. But the first image is the one from James White's book. And so you have this triangle with the three truths expressed in the catechism on it. So you have the three persons on one side of the triangle, and you have monotheism, or in other words, one God on the bottom line. And then you have the equality of the persons there on the other side of the triangle. Okay, so what this also shows you is what errors you fall into when you deny one of these truths. So this is what the, the catechism actually is wanting to guard us from. It's wanting to guard us from making these kinds of errors when we think about Yahweh. So let me show you what happens. First, so if you look at, and if you have your outline, um, it's pretty small, so I know you have to kind of pull it up to your face to look at it or whatever. But if you can see it, hopefully this makes more sense. So if you deny monothe monotheism, you deny that there's one God. And so if you look on that diagram, where does the arrow point to? Right, It points to the tip of the triangle. And so you have 
three equal persons but not one God, and what you end up having is polytheism. So if you deny that there is one God, you fall into the error, the heresy of polytheism. Polytheism, many gods. And in in denying monotheism, then denying that there is one God, it leads to such errors that maybe like in conservative circles, like us, you would fall into something called like social Trinitarianism, which is, you know, really separates the persons too much, in other words. And in more extreme forms, you have like rank polytheism, you know, many gods, and it's almost always associated with the so-called gods not being equal or some specific person being supreme over the rest, like with Mormonism, for example, or with the Jehovah Witnesses as well. So let's look at uh, a side that would explain that as well, too. The second error, so we can keep monotheism, right? You can hold on to the three persons, but if you deny the equality of the persons, this, look at the arrow, the arrow from the equality, where is it pointing to? It's pointing to what's called subordinationism. Subordinationism is almost, it almost always plays like this. It's where the son is subordinate to the father. And they're not talking about in the incarnation. They're talking about just in a general way, that the father is greater than the son. This is the, that would mean that there's hierarchy in the Godhead. God the father has supreme authority. God the son is under the authority of God. And in that way, and so this leads historically in the early church to the problem known as Arianism. That's where there was this time where God or where the word was not God and the word came into existence and was created by God. And then through God, the word creates everything else, right? That's heresy. That's the Jehovah Witnesses have even changed their Bible so that John 1 reads like that. So they deny that Jesus Christ is eternally God. He's not fully God. And so you have this hierarchy created. Simply put, uh, the modern day Jehovah Witnesses are nothing more than the ancient Arius heretics. So this stuff matters. You need to be careful about this. These boundaries are essential. But what happens if we deny the three persons of God? Let's look at where the arrow points from this triangle. So if you deny the three persons, but you say you can still claim, oh, there's one God, monotheism, and he's you know equal power. That really doesn't make sense because who's he equal to? But look where the arrow points from the triangle leads to the error of modalism. So modalism, also called uh, Sibelianism, which means that there is one God who manifests himself in three different ways. So again, think about like the H2O example. It's all H2O, but gas, ice, water. That's mono, that's modalism. So what they'll say is something like this. In the Old Testament, uh, he, man, he being God, manifested himself as a father. In the Gospels, he manifested himself as a son. And then in, in, through the Acts and the church age, he manifests himself through the Holy Spirit. But they're not three eternal equal persons. And we find this today expressed like through uh, the denomination called Oneness Pentecostals. Uh, the United Pentecostal Church, for example. You often hear this among people. I, I remember talking to a young lady who was coming to this church, uh, but she stopped for many years, and she was talking about being baptized in the name of Jesus. That's a, that's a, that should set off bells for you. If you hear someone talking about being baptized only in the name of Jesus, not in the name of the Father, the Son, and Spirit, it's like a 99.99% chance that they have been influenced by oneness Pentecostals. And they'll misunderstand the book of Acts. They'll have creative solutions for what we just read about Jesus' great commission and the Trinitarian baptism because the reality is they don't believe in the Trinity. 
they deny that they are that there is one God who exists eternally and equally as three persons. By the way, also, um, again, most of the analogies fall into this area. This is what that and what we'd also call tripartism. So there are these three kind of planks then, these three boundaries then, these boundary markers of the doctrine of the Trinity. There is one God, monotheism, eternally existing in three persons who are equal in power and glory. And so in closing, just a couple final thoughts, and we can get to some questions or any clarifications. Just be gentle, though. Uh, I wanted to end in the realm of adoration. That's what the Trinity should do for us. It's not, again, it's not a mental puzzle that we figure out. This is the God who saves us and is worthy of all worship and praise. It testifies to how glorious God is. So I appreciate how Jonathan Edwards thought as he reflected on this. He wrote, Sometimes only mentioning a single word caused my heart to burn within me, or only seeing the name of Christ or the name of some attribute of God, and God has appeared glorious to me on account of the Trinity. It has made me to have exalting thoughts of God. He subsists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and Holy Ghost. The sweetest joys and delights I've experienced have not been those that have arisen from a hope of my own good estate, but in a direct view of the glorious things of the gospel. And so it is, then, in the truths of the Trinity that we find the glories of God contained as he's revealed them to us in the Scripture. So first, then, our salvation depends on the work of our triune God. This is not simply some abstract theological debate. To deny the Trinity is to deny salvation, because it is our Trinitarian God who saves. The act of salvation is all of God. They operate inseparably in saving us, but we speak concerning the specific acts of the three persons. So the the Father appoints us to salvation. The Son accomplishes our salvation. The Holy Spirit applies salvation into our hearts, into our souls. So apart from God, if we reject the Trinity, we have no salvation. I like how this is summarized from Philip Graham Ryken. He describes the Trinitarian work of salvation as three movements. And each of these movements is associated with and facilitated by a different person in the Trinity. Although they have one will and truly they all work together. But the Father, salvation originates with the Father. Ephesians 1, 3 to 6 tells us how the Father chose us from before the foundation of the world and predetermined our adoption as his children through Jesus Christ. The Father, we could say, is the administrator of salvation and he oversees the process from beginning to end. And then we could say in Riken's model here that the Son, salvation is brought to fruition in the Son. Everything the Father does for our salvation, He does through Christ. The work of the Son means redemption and adoption become ours. It means reconciliation and sanctification and glorification for us because of the Son fulfilling the plan of salvation. And again, Ephesians 1, but now 7 through 12, it operates horizontally as well as vertically. And it's for Jew and Gentile alike. It's through the Son that we receive salvation and come into uh, close communion and full relationship with the triune God. So we have the Father, we have the Son, and finally the Holy Spirit, where salvation is communicated to us by the Spirit. And the Spirit changes us from the inside out. He performs the gracious act of regeneration. And with this comes the gift of faith and a spiritual ability to believe in the resurrection. And so through the Holy Spirit, our salvation becomes a present reality applicable to our lives in our own specific context. You good? Okay. It is, it is the work 
of the Holy Spirit in our lives that serves as a seal establishing us as the children of God and is a promise of our inheritance to us. So that the Father elects, the Son atones, the Spirit applies. The doctrine of the Trinity prevents us from all kinds of errors. So do you see how apart from God existing in three persons, three equal eternal persons, there would be no salvation? Why then, this is why it's so essential for us to recognize God as he's revealed himself to us in the scriptures. And a side note, you know, this is a good defense actually for the doctrine of a limited atonement or a particular redemption as well. Uh, why do people say that Jesus died for everyone? But then they don't say that the Father elected everyone, or that the Spirit applies it to everyone. Remember, their, their, their operations are inseparable. So why would Jesus do more than, than the Father and the Spirit? It's not consistent. A, a, a right knowing, if you want to understand the acts of God rightly, you need to know God rightly first. Only has one will. And then lastly, the Trinity orders our relationships and helps us to understand the attributes of God. So here I refer to an article that I read a while back from Kevin DeYoung. He wrote that we worship a God who is constant and in constant and eternal relationship with himself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There's In our culture today, our community, there I just even said it, community is kind of a buzzword. Uh, it's even in the Christian faith, community is this buzzword. But in the Christian framework, that what community really is, is this interpersonal community that is seen as an expression of the eternal nature of God. And likewise, it's only within a Trinitarian God that love can be an eternal attribute of God. De Young goes on to say, without a plurality of persons in the Godhead, we would be forced to think that God created humans so that he might show love and know love, thereby making love a created thing and God dependent. But with a biblical understanding of the Trinity, we can say that God did not create in order to be loved or in order to love, but rather created out of the overflow of his love, of his perfect love, which has always existed among Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who live forever, who have lived forever in perfect and mutual relationship and delight and love, which is, which is again, just expressed among the Trinity. So love is a personal attribute of God, and you have in our Trinitarian God Three persons loving each other and inviting us to that love through salvation. Yahweh exists in the bonds of love. And then out of the overflow of their love, they have sovereignly decided to extend that love to image bearers. So he creates and he loves in Christ. And so we have then again in the Trinity something far more than abstract theology. Something far more than just a, a, a difficult puzzle to be debated about. It's of the utmost importance. Because at the same time, uh, we learn of this God who is so amazing. And at the same time, we need to be gracious and patient as we help others come to a right understanding. Because we are in such deep waters. And it's my hope and prayer that we'll grow in our understanding of the central truth. And that at the same time, we'll grow in love for one another and love for this amazing uh, triune, one and only true God. So let's pray and then we'll take any questions or clarifications. Our Father in heaven. We're so grateful to you for our time together. We thank you even for the Trinitarian model of prayer that you reveal to us in your word, that we are to pray to you, our Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, through the power of the Holy Spirit in us. And we ask that you'd help us to understand better and rightly this doctrine of the Trinity. Let it not be just some mental uh, act, God has said, let it be a truth that inflames our heart to love you and to worship you and to 
to stand and to bow in adoration of all of your glory. To you be all praise in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you guys. Sorry for going a little long, but any questions or anything need clarification? Yeah, Jeff? Equal in power and glory. That's how the it ends. No, no, no. That's the catechism says that they're equal in power and glory. Right. You're good. You got it all. <laughs> Which diagram? The top one. Yeah, no, the spirit would be Yahweh. Let me see. God, Yahweh is God, right? Right. Right. So, yeah. Right. Who is God? God is Yahweh. And so the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. So, Yahweh, we think of all three of the persons. It's the, the the common, like Nick was saying, the common tendency we have is to think of only the Father as Yahweh, but that's not true to the word. Yeah. Right, is not. Well, the Father is not the Holy Spirit. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Father is, is not the Son. I didn't talk about that diagram because I figured everybody's seen this a thousand times, but maybe I should. Right. Yeah. yeah, one God, right? Not two Yahwehs, just right. one Yahweh, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, uh, I'm not I'm not sure about that specifically, at least. But I, there is the notion, especially among Christians today, they'll say that the, the Trinity is not revealed in the Old Testament, and that's I, I think just not really you're not really reading carefully, even because you have like the angel of the Lord. So like in Judges 15, when Manoah sees the angel of the Lord and he says, like, "We've seen God," you know, and how do you, how is this God appearing as a person there even? So there's there's ample evidence given to that. I think, but like you're saying though. Revelation is revealed progressively. And so we, that's why another hermeneutical principle is we give the New Testament priority in interpreting scripture. We look at the Old Testament through what we know that God has revealed in the New Testament. We don't do it the other way. When you do it the other way, you end up with dispensationalism. You end up with, uh, you know, baptizing babies, all kinds of errors when you view, when you give the Old Testament priority in interpretation. Certainly. Abraham looked forward to my day, you know? Right. Jesus said that. Like, yeah. Right, yeah. Yeah. For sure. Absolutely. Again, too, we, so it's, it's almost hard to talk about the Trinity and not accidentally say something that's not 
orthodox. Or it's hard to to not do that because it's just it's just so difficult to talk about. Even our language just has a hard time framing uh, the the things that we see revealed in Scripture. And so, um, just you know, when you're dealing with the training of somebody, be gracious because what you have often is the difference between a formal heretic and an accidental heretic. A formal heretic is someone who says, "Oh no, no, this is true." You know, the they dig their heels in and they say, "Oh, that you know, the God just exists in different modes." That would be a formal heretic. But it could be possible for someone to say, "Oh, God was Jesus here," and they they're not mean to say that. They're just struggling with trying to explain what the scriptures are saying. So that would be like what you would call an accidental heretic. And then you would call them on it, and they would say, "Oh no, no I don't mean that." Yeah. So it's just hard to talk about, but it's good to talk about because again. It's the, it's the central article of our faith. You get the Trinity. It's possible to get the Trinity right and then still be in error, right? Think of Rome. Uh, they they affirm Father, Son, and Spirit in all the classical Trinitarian uh, doctrine, but yet they still miss mess up justification. So, Yeah. And if you think about it too, the Arian um not Arianism, uh Arminianism, they came out of the Reformation as well, right? And so the reformers said of them that they were they're one step, they're going back to Rome with that doctrine, right? They they came out of that same culture as the Protestant reformers, but they didn't faithfully, you know, interpret scripture. Anything else guys? Seven forty. Kept you long. Thank you for staying. Okay. So next week, next Sunday evening, question 10 and 11. Good topic. The decrees of God. So another deep water area, okay? The decrees.